On this prequel episode, we've got our fan reaction to The Shining. We're learning about frame stories and previewing fried green tomatoes. Hello and welcome back to this film podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. <laughs> Katie, we're recording this Tuesday, November 3rd. <laughs> we're just going to record uh, and pretend nothing else is happening in the world. <laughs> Um, we shall see. Uh, we might not even know when this episode's out. When you're listening to this tomorrow, mm-hmm. it probably not. very likely will not yeah. be decided yet. But uh, it may. Um, it may be. We'll we'll see. Uh, it all comes down to fucking Pennsylvania of all fucking states, <laughs> pretty much. So, yeah. Um, but anyways, so we're not here to talk about the election right now. We're here uh, to talk about uh, The Shining hear what everybody else had to say we got tons of fan feedback on our shining episode people were very excited uh to voice their opinions on that one and we've got uh, a little learning thing segments about frame stories which we've mentioned before but never taken a little bit of a deep dive into and then we're previewing fried green tomatoes but first as always during our prequel episodes we have our patron shout outs First up, we've got new patrons. And this new patron, I think, actually was in there right before our last prequel, and we might have just barely missed the deadline. I, I saw I that think, it was... I think this person joined our Patreon, like, at, right after we recorded oh, maybe or something that was like it. that. Because I saw it, and I, was, I saw this person, I was like, oh, that they weren't... We didn't have anybody, but it was, like, the same day. <laughs> like, yeah. I noticed it. Anyways, uh, this new patron joining at the Hugo Award winner level, uh, it's Jake L. So thank you, Jake for joining and supporting us. And as always, we have our Academy Award-winning patrons, and they are Winchester's Never Die, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young's Gratch, Just Gratch. I hope you could hear the cat moan in the middle of that pause. I don't think you could. These (laughs) new mics don't pick up as much background noise as the old ones. Shelby says Black Lives and Trans Lives Matter. I voted for Biden because the other option is even worse. And Alina... Delet Kalova. Yes. Harm reduction. It's a thing. <laughs> it matters, regardless of what some people may tell you. All right. Thank you to all of our wonderful patrons. We appreciate you all very much. Let's get into our incredibly long fan reaction and our fan poll follow ups for The Shining. Yeah. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Okay, so we have a lot of feedback on this one. Um, At some point, just so you guys know, I'm probably going to have to start, like, editing um, fan feedback. Because with stuff like The Shining, um, with some of our Twilight episodes, where we get, like, a lot of comments and a lot of long comments. um, And I... hate doing that which is why i don't do it yeah i think what what we'll likely do is as opposed to like in general would be like editing people's comments down a little bit to kind of hit try to hit some highlights from your if we if we keep getting a huge volume right because these episodes aren't supposed to be an hour and a half long they're supposed to be yeah 30 minutes or so um and we like to get to the other segments as well so we may have to trim some of your comments down a little bit and this one you didn't yet right no i didn't okay (laughs) well we have a lot so let's just go let's go let's go okay all right so on facebook we had eight total votes six of them were for the book and two of them were for the movie 
Sarah said, first of all, thank you so much for sharing my message about Estes Park and the Stanley Hotel. Winter weather has brought some relief to the area, so the danger is no longer as imminent, but the fires in my area were devastating to a lot of families, so the fact that you shared information about how people can help is greatly appreciated. This was a very hard decision because both pieces of media are excellent in their own ways, but in the end, I had to choose the book over the movie. I was extremely impressed with the, the fidelity of the setting of the novel. It felt like I was reading about places I had actually been and scenery and weather that I had actually experienced as a Colorado native, and I was quite disappointed to watch the movie and recognize none of that in the exterior setting or even in the interior design of the hotel. Also, the movie lost major points by killing Halloran and not making him much of a character to begin with, and by not giving Wendy as much of an outward expression of the inner strength that was obvious in her character in the book. And lastly, I just don't feel like the movie had as satisfying of an ending as the book. The fact that the hotel was destroyed, ostensibly due to the fact that the person that the hotel's spirit had chosen as its caretaker forgot the physical necessities of that job while being distracted by the supernatural ones at the end of the book, and that we get to see a satisfying ending for the survivors was what made me really decide that the book was better. Maybe it's just my current state of mind, but after spending so much time getting to know the story's characters and experiencing all that horror with them, I was glad to know that the hotel was no longer able to ensnare any other men like Jack, and that Danny and his mother and Halloran were going to be okay. The movie is a great piece of filmmaking on its own, and I was impressed with the way it managed to tell a similar and equally terrifying story within a visual medium, but the book wins out for me in the end. There you go. Very in-depth, very well-argued, well, well, yes. well, well reasoned. Thank you for that one. Cassie said, I enjoyed the movie, but the hedge monsters, man, that's some <laughs> scary shit. And the main reason I chose the book over the movie. There you go. Succinct. <laughs> Charlene said, I saw the movie once about 20 years ago, but I don't really like horror movies. So no surprise that I thought the book was better. I first read it about 10 years ago, and then I reread it when Dr. Sleep came out, which is definitely worth a read. King can be hit or miss, but this is one of my favorites. I loved getting inside the characters and seeing Jack genuinely struggle with his demons. I also enjoyed hearing the tidbit in your prequel episode about King having the dream about the hose, because that scene with Danny and the fire extinguisher is one that really stood out to me. Is it real? Is it not real? It's probably just my imagination, but how can I be sure? We've all been there. I kind of want to reread it again, but now that I have a son Danny's age, I don't know that I could handle it. Okay. Ian said, I loved the really at the big bike revelation. Definitely needed that laugh. What is that in reference to? When you said that you rode a, a big wheel until you were like 10, oh. and I was like, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> because it looks so I thought small. That's what, I thought that's what it might have been a reference <laughs> to, but I was like, big bike? What? Yeah, I, yeah, the big yeah. wheel. Yeah. I was probably wrong. It was probably not 10. It was probably like seven or eight, but it was still yeah. older than Danny. Uh, being on the big empty ships with miles of corridor, the thought of barreling down them on a bike like Danny is very appealing. I disagree about the score. Wendy Carlos music is perhaps the most single-handedly creepiest music I've ever listened to with the witch being a close second. The wailing, the loud audio jump scares that punctuated it all, all adds to the tense, off-putting nature of the movie. 
On the flip side, I do concur with Katie on the picture at the end. It was always my impression when I watch it that the Overlook claimed another soul. As they say in the Haunted Mansion, there are 99 happy haunts, but there's room for one more. One question I have was, where did Wendy get the wine bottle to hit Jack with? Um, and I, maybe I wasn't clear about this I think in you our mentioned episode. it, but it just might It was like clear. a big decorative. Like those like, ones you see at like Italian restaurants yeah, where they're like... Like at an olive garden uh, or something. Like decorative yeah. ones, yeah. Obnoxious big decorative ones. Like Probably never had wine in yeah. it to begin with. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't necessarily... I, I, I agree. I don't know if it was clear in the episode, but I don't think the score's bad. I think it's very good. I my only argument was that I think it's overused a little bit mm-hmm. potentially, um, and I thought the wailing was a little weird at the beginning in particular. But throughout the rest of the movie, I really like the score. I think it is really creepy and really effective. I just think maybe they could have been a little more sparing with it; would have made it even more effective, in my opinion. But what was there I did like. And, you know, I did say that the sound design bothered me in the movie, and it did. Um, but for me, I think it's probably a case of, like, some of that stuff has now been used to death. Yeah. To where I can't appreciate as much. Yeah, because I, I disagree with you that during with the episode. <laughs> I, I found the sound design fascinating and, and really incredible. But, yeah. And, yeah, the score, I didn't think it was bad or any or even not good. I, I thought it was good. I was a little overused, so. Andrew said, as an adaptation, it's not very faithful, but considering how the miniseries was, it's probably for the better. In a vacuum, ignoring all of Kubrick's hideous behavior, I've got to give it to the movie. It stretches the scope of what the Overlook was capable of while still feeling grounded and human. All right. There you go. Somebody coming to the defense of the movie, finally. (laughs) Not to the defense, but other people said they liked it, but... And then I got some messages from our listener, Patty, who is a person that I know in real life. Gotcha. Um, She messaged me. And this is our listener who worked at the Stanley. Oh. Um, So Patty said, I'm finally listening to the Shining episode, and I'm happy to answer all the questions about the Stanley. What they told us to say in tours was that Kubrick went to the Stanley and loved it but thought that the town of Estes Park was too close for the aesthetic he wanted, and you can't just tear down a hotel, or, or tear down a town to make a movie. So he built it out on sound stages instead. 217 is a real room at the Stanley that mm-hmm. King stayed in, and it is a super active room. The door numbers get stolen quite often. The miniseries actors were allowed to stay at the hotel, but none of them would actually stay overnight due to all of the unexplained activity. 217 is known for apparitions of a maid. She's said to be seen in the mirror of the bathroom, like you're looking in the mirror and see her behind you over by the tub. But there's no mention of her being young and sexy or anything. Just a regular housekeeper type lady. They even think they know who she is, an actual former employee who worked her entire life there and was injured in a gas explosion accident. The Stanleys took care of her and paid for her kid's education, so the story is that she's grateful so she still goes to work. There is on a, there is a notorious horny ghost too, but no costumes involved in his stories. His name is Lord Dunraven. What a name. I think is how that would be pronounced. Looks like it. She said he mostly gropes people, <laughs> breathes on your neck, and plays with hair. Although I did have buttons undone, which was hugely embarrassing to realize they were done up before I went in that closet, and I didn't undo them. King supposedly had a drink with the bartender just before he headed home for the season. The bartender supposedly shared some stories with King, so. Mm, okay. I will say, as somebody who's given tours, 
and been told things about buildings that I've places that I've given tours, I've never believed anything. That I feel having given tours and knowing how fast and loose tour guides can play with some of that <laughs> stuff. I like when I go on tours now, I'm like, I believe maybe half of what you're telling me. Not that they're intentionally lying, but it's just you hear it from somebody who heard it from some, like sure. the tours that I used to give. The information that I would tell people I got from the last guy who gave tours. I don't know where he got it from. He could have made it up. He could have, you know, like, a, so, yeah. But uh, that is interesting. Um, yeah, that is. It's fun. I'm a little upset that this Lord Dunraven was in, in neither the book nor the no, movie. But. Just a creepy ghost. <laughs> gropes people, apparently. All right. So over on Twitter, we had 19 votes um, when I looked at it there was still like an hour left yeah. on the poll but so we had 19 votes 11 of them were for the book and eight were for the movie so book one out yeah we had a narrower margin on twitter but the book did win out mm-hmm. kelly napier at standby for live said going with the book the first time i saw the movie i wasn't even scared and i scare easily i'm used to slow-paced media that serves to constantly ramp up your anxiety twin peaks anyone but this was just slow with very little payoff. Hmm. I love Kubrick, but this wasn't it. All right, all right, all right, fair enough. Um, at Shelby Suderman said, I prefer the book because part of the horror is the tragedy of the Torrance family. We come into the story just as the characters are trying to put their life back together, and it feels like it could be possible, but then the Overlook steps in and destroys everything. I like that Book Jack, despite his mountain of issues, loves his family and is actually trying to do his best by them to the point where the Overlook has to kill him when he resists murdering Danny at the end so it can puppet him around instead. Some other thoughts. I think the movie kills Halloran just so someone other than Jack dies for their horror movie. I think it's a good change that movie Halloran's excuse is that management wants him to get rid of the Torrance family instead of in the book when he tells people he just has a feeling that Danny's in trouble. People are less likely to question his urgency. I had a thought watching the movie that if I went into it knowing nothing about The Shining, I would have thought that Jack was going to die or get possessed in the bathtub lady scene because he's set up like the obvious jerk who's first to die in the horror movie. I don't know if that was an intentional subversion or not, or maybe it's just me reading it that way. I guess I can kind of see that. If Mm -hmm. I, I mean, if it was anybody other than Jack Nicholson, maybe like, Mm -hmm. and even, I mean, even at the time, um, and you know, I, yeah, I guess it just helps by you you know going in sort yeah. of that he's like the main character. Um, but I can see kind of what you're saying too that uh, that there is that sort of trope of that type type of character character tending to die early. I will say it's interesting. This isn't something we discussed that in the book Jack dies and is like being puppeted by the hotel to kill Danny. What we didn't talk about that at all. Yeah, that happens. Okay, that happens like at the very end. Um, the hotel wants him to kill Danny, and he, like, is able to resist it long oh. enough for Danny to, like, run away from him. That's interesting. Um, and then he, the hotel makes him, like, smash himself with the mallet. Interesting. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't, yeah, we missed that part. <laughs> That's wild. There's a lot to talk no, about. No, there absolutely is. It was already a two-hour episode. I know, it's you can't, yeah, you miss things. I'm not, I, you know, it's impossible to talk about everything. It's just, yeah. Okay, um, Gray, at Gray Hightower said, have to go with the book, if only because I feel like King can't be adapted properly. King movies usually turn out great, even masterful, but you just can't capture inner dialogue slash turmoil on film like you can read it and feel it. 
I think that's a good point. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense um, for the type of author King is and the way mm-hmm. uh, his characters are written. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. You can I make good, you can make good things out of his properties, but it's tough to make really good adaptations. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's you can make it really good, but it's tough to capture exactly, exactly what he's doing. Exactly the same vibe, yeah. yeah. Matt Nelson... Um, at Matt W. Nelson. Real quick, that was something we talked a lot about with um, the last King we did, uh, Dolan's Cadillac. Yes. Obviously, the movie yeah. just wasn't very good in general. But one of the big <laughs> one of the big issues with it was that we it, you, that you felt that we didn't. We, it was such a hard time telling because such a big part of it was like um, Dolan's uh, not Dolan um, the other the guy. other guy yeah. yeah his like motivation and his sort of what he's going through during mm-hmm. the whole situation. So yeah, okay. Anyway, sorry. Matt Nelson at Matt W. Nelson had a couple of thoughts. Um, Re Wendy beginning to see the ghosts. Um, this happens after Jack has already fallen under the hotel's thrall. Perhaps her ability to see them happens because the hotel is more powerful now that it has Jack under its spell. Just an idea. Um, also, read the $900 short story. Believe it or not, that's not that unrealistic for the time. Magazines used to actually be able to pay for material, even unsolicited. Unfortunately, art and writing have been terribly devalued over time. That's fair. Um, yeah, that's fair. That seems reasonable. Um, on the other hand, in Little Women, Joe wins $100 for a story prize and... That price has not gone up. <laughs> but back then, $100 was a fortune, right? When was Little Women set? Civil War. Yeah, $100 is, that's a year's pay I mean, or I'm saying right? if Maybe we adjust, if we adjust for inflation. No, that's what I mean. That, you yeah, should that's be what winning I, a fortune. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying is that it, back then, $100, yeah, it hasn't changed. But when, <laughs> then $100 was like, probably like, I don't even know, at least $1,000, if not more now, I would say. I have no idea, but. It's got to be far more than that. Uh, The Never Gets Old podcast at Never Gets Old Pod said, I prefer the TV miniseries with Steven Weber, much more accurate to the book and better paced than the movie. I feel like I've heard very disparate things about this miniseries. (laughs) It's it's notoriously uh, worse reviewed, not notoriously, but it is worse reviewed than the film. Um and some people have seemed to, we've had comments of people saying they like it and other people saying, yeah. no, not good. So, interesting. Maybe we'll have to come back to that one someday. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe I'll read it next time and then we'll do the TV miniseries. Like a, a special? A revisit some special. Kind of thing, yeah. yeah. Um, and our last Twitter comment was from Frogs Are Friends at Frogs Are Friends. <laughs> Frogs Are Friends, I agree. Um, they said, agree with Katie's assessment too that the book was better. Kubrick's movies leave me cold with more spectacle and precise shot composition than true emotion, which the book delivered in spades. I really felt for Book Jack as he fought and lost the battle against his demons. So we're kind of going back to that like emotional yeah. core there yeah. um, that it seems like the movie didn't capture for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And we actually had a couple comments on Instagram this time. Right. We usually don't get a lot of feedback on Instagram. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a different beast than yeah. the other two. Um, but Kristen said, I think I've agreed with you guys almost every time, but have to disagree on this one. Oh, the book is good, but the movie is epic. Fair enough. And um, no, I, th- I think is how you would print. It's N-O-E. Probably no. Yeah. No. Um, 
They said, haven't read the book, but I have been more critical of the movie after watching Dr. Sleep. I think I can better understand where Stephen King is coming from, but the movie has no warmth to it, it's ice cold, and the movie Dr. Sleep has an emotional undercurrent that is starkly missing from hmm. The Shining. IDK, if it's just a story thing, haven't read The Shining myself, but when I revisited that movie after watching Dr. Sleep, I was a lot more critical of it. I used to think The Shining was a masterpiece in film, but now I'm not so sure. Interesting. So, I have neither read nor seen no, Dr. Me, Sleep, me so either. I can't weigh so in can't. on that. But that is that is a really interesting takeaway. For sure. Wow, those are some of the best comments we've ever gotten. Some of the most in-depth, uh, well-thought-out, nuanced feedback we've gotten ever. Not that we haven't gotten good feedback before, but it was just a uh, lot was, of really yeah, good particularly feedback. Like, yeah, high volume of very good feedback. Awesome. Thank you all very much for your feedback. We love that kind of stuff. If you want to do that, you can follow us on all the social medias and uh, tell us what you think about fried green tomatoes. But first, let's learn about frame stories. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. So we've mentioned frame stories before. Um, we had another Learning Things episode about uh, multiple plot stories when yeah. we did holes yes. um, but we had not done a learning things segment specifically about frame stories so no. i thought we would get into that a little bit so a frame story is a story set within another story um, so it's where an introductory or a main narrative sets the stage for either a more emphasized second narrative or for a set of shorter stories mm -hmm. Um, frame stories are also known as a framing device, frame narratives, frame tales, intercalated narrative, or a sandwich narrative. You could also call it a donut with a donut hole in the middle. Oh, yes. <laughs> a donut with a donut hole in the middle. Yeah. It's kind oh. of what a frame story is. A donut. A, <laughs> not, I can't remember the line now. We just watched... Uh, we just watched Knives Out a couple Knives weeks out, ago. Yeah. So frame stories are an extremely popular narrative device. They're also extremely old, very old storytelling technique. Frame stories appear throughout various mythologies and folklores, including Egyptian, Greek, Indian, Middle Eastern, and Judeo-Christian. Um, 1001 Nights is a frame story. The Odyssey is mm -hmm. a frame story. Um, so a frame story is a device that allows you to lead readers from the first story into one or more other stories. A frame story can be used to inform readers about aspects of the secondary narrative that might be otherwise hard to understand. It could also provide background context for the main story. Frame could also be a way for the author to provide commentary mm -hmm. on that main story or stories. Frame stories can also offer multiple, multiple perspectives to the readers, um, maybe multiple perspectives literally from different characters, um, but it can also give readers more information about characters regarding their feelings, thoughts, motivations, etc. Um, when the framing device envelops a single story, opening and closing can be enough to constitute that frame. For example, the movie Saving Private Ryan opens with a veteran in a cemetery, but it's not until the end of the film that we return to that frame. Mm -hmm. It's still a frame story. When the framing device is used to tie together several different smaller stories, that's referred to as a cyclical frame story. 
And a lot of older examples fall under this type of framing device. Um, 1001 Nights, The Canterbury Tales, The Decameron are just a few well-known examples. Mm -hmm. Television has also used this device to tie together clip shows, with the framing device often being the main characters reminiscing about their various adventures. Um, Clip shows have kind of fallen out of fashion, thank thank God. Um, But it is an interesting example nonetheless. They made a little bit of sense back in the day when the internet didn't exist. Yeah. They made a A little bit of sense. Or like home video, they at least made a little bit of sense, but... But But turning something on and finding out that it was going to be a clip show was like, ugh. Now, one of the most common methods of setting up a frame story is by having a character literally start telling a story. Um, Some common examples like a parent telling a child a bedtime story, a group of friends maybe gathered around a campfire, um, an author putting pen to paper, etc., However, this doesn't necessarily have to be what your frame story is. Uh, Hallucinations or dreams can also be used as framing devices. The Wizard of Oz is one Mm -hmm. famous example of that. The movie Inception also uses framing devices to set up frames within frames, um, (laughs) emphasizing the unreliable nature of the overall narrative. Epistolary writing can also be considered a type of framing device. Um, Individual diary entries, letters, newspaper articles, etc. can tell tell smaller stories within an overarching larger narrative. I wouldn't say that every example of epistolary writing is a frame story, but there is a lot of overlap. So framing devices are a pretty basic form of storytelling, but there's a lot that you can do with them. Your frame can be very literal, like older Rose literally telling everyone about her experiences on the Mm -hmm. Titanic, or it can be more implied, like the framing device of the nameless narrator and the stained glass images at the beginning and end of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Sometimes a story will open with a frame and never return to it, still using a framing device. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, Disney's Aladdin opens with the peddler who's strongly implied to be the genie in disguise, Mm -hmm. um, telling a story about the mysterious lamp. So it's implied that the story overall is coming from him, but we never actually return to that framing story. Framing devices might only be bookends on the main story, like with Saving Private Ryan or The Wizard of Oz, or we might pop back and forth between the main narrative and the frame, like with Titanic or The Princess Bride. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to see how both the book and movie versions of Fried Green Tomatoes utilize framing devices. I had not previously read the book. Um, I'm about 100 pages in, and it's been several years since I've seen the movie, but I feel like I recall the movie having a more direct frame than the book seems to so far. All right. So I'm interested to see how that shakes out. Interesting. I don't remember anything about the movie or the book, (laughs) and I believe I read and seen both, but it's been a very long time, so... That's going to do it for our Learning Things segment. What a fascinating trip into the world of frame stories. Let's go ahead and learn a little bit about fried green tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. Evelyn tried food. And? I'm sorry, honey. The game's almost over. I just want to see a little bit of it. She tried romance. If I'd answered the door were an only cell thing, would you still be watching the baseball game? No, honey. I'd probably be checking you into a loony bin. Then. Hey! 
she met a new friend. Mrs. Cleo Threadgood, 82-year-old widow. Imagine that. <laughs> a good friend. I hate candy bars all over the house. What a candy bar ain't gonna hurt you, none. Oh, I know, but it's 10 or 11. Who gave her some advice. You need some hormones. <laughs> and told her a story that began long ago. So the movie dropped half of the title. Yes. A, a choice that is often made. Yeah. Um, but Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe is a 1987 novel by Fanny Flagg, an American actress, comedian, and author. Um, so the novel use a couple, uses a couple different narrative devices to tell its story, the main one being a frame story with one character relating tales of their past to another character. Um, it also uses excerpts from fictional newspapers. Um, it uses nonlinear storytelling and a mix of omniscient and limited omniscient narration. Mm -hmm. uh, the titular Whistle Stop Cafe is loosely based on the Irondale Cafe in Irondale, Alabama, which was a suburb near Flagg's birthplace. Uh, that cafe was actually bought by Flagg's aunt, Bess Fortenberry in 1932 and was run by her and two friends for four, about four decades. Um, and according to the internet, it is still in operation and is also known for its fried green tomatoes. More on this later. I have notes about this. Uh, some of the novel's themes include lesbianism, women's aging, racism, food, memory, and storytelling. A cornucopia. <laughs> just, <laughs> just a smorgasbord <laughs> of topics there. We, it's, it, I'm imagining that list with the, uh, what's his name from SNL? The club guy. Do you know what I'm, um, <laughs> what's his name? Oh, God. It's that one. And he's like, it has everything. Lesbianism, <laughs> women's aging, racism, food, memory. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? I think so. Uh, yeah. He does the he goes like he does like lists of like he, he's like the the new hottest club is fried green tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. <laughs> it has everything: lesbianism, memory. <laughs> Anyways, it is it is quite the list. <laughs> I'm excited to dig into it. Uh, so this novel spent 36 weeks Stephane. on. That's his name. Sorry, I'm pretty sure it's Stefan. It was driving me crazy that I couldn't remember the character's name. So this novel spent 36 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And uh, beloved American author Harper Lee, who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, said of this novel. And that novel, sequel that everybody yes, loved. And, and the sequel that was very controversial. Um, although... So, well, someday we'll do To Kill a Mockingbird yeah. and talk about that, but that should have never been published. Yeah. Um, so uh, she said of the novel, Airplanes and television have removed the thread goods from the southern scene. Happily for us, Fanny Flagg has preserved a whole community of them in a richly comic, poignant narrative that records the exuberance of their lives, the sadness of their departure. Edgy Threadgood is a true original. Huckleberry Finn would have tried to marry her. I guess that's a compliment. I guess. <laughs> I mean, she seemed to like it. He would have tried but failed from what I've heard. Tried but failed. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and talk about Fried Green Tomatoes, the movie. If you ever touch her again, I'll kill you. Well, I sure as hell scared him, didn't I? But how anybody could have thought 
she murdered that man is beyond me. You ain't fooling me, girly girl. You're in a whole mess of trouble. You understand? Did anybody really think she did it? Some said yes, some said no. Fried Green Tomatoes is a 1991 film directed by John Avnet, also known for directing 88 Minutes, Righteous Kill, Up Close and Personal. Uh, it did a lot of work with um, Al Pacino. Mm. Uh, so. Uh, he was also a producer. It was written by Fanny Flagg and Carol Sobieski. Uh, Carol Sobieski is most known for Annie, uh, mm. but she also wrote the 1988 Born Identity, the original, I believe. I didn't know that was a remake. I didn't either. Huh. I guess that original one was not very popular. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it stars Kathy Bates, Jessica Tandy, Stuart Masterson, Mary Louise Parker, and Cicely Tyson. And also um, Mary Stuart... Uh, I don't know why she's not on this list, but she wasn't listed on Wikipedia. Anyways, I can't remember her name. Mary something. There's two Mary hyphen mm -hmm. something and doesn't matter. I'm sure she'll come up later. <laughs> the movie grossed $120 million against a budget of just $11 million. So it wow. was a huge financial success. Uh, it was nominated for two Oscars, didn't win either of them. Uh, one for Best Supporting Actress for Jessica Handy and one for Best Adapted Screenplay. The film is rated 74% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and has a 64% on Metacritic. And this is at the point where I finally hit, it hit me. I was like, is everything a freaking 65% on Metacritic? Every movie I feel like I've ever, other than bad movies, mm -hmm. every movie that has anything over like a, a 60 on Rotten Tomatoes has a 65 on Metacritic. It could have a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. I feel like it has a 65 uh, I don't know. I don't know how Metacritic, Metacritic works. I don't know how the rating system works. I know roughly how Rotten Tomatoes works. It's like a pure like, is it good or bad? And then the number is based on how many critics said it mm -hmm. was good versus bad, essentially. Mm -hmm. So like a ninety nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes means ninety nine percent of critics said it was good. Not mm -hmm. not they said it was ten out of ten, but that they you know not that the movie's a nine point nine out of ten, but that ninety nine percent of critics said it was a good movie. So they could have been ninety nine percent of critics said it was a five point one out of ten, basically. But I don't know how Metacritic works, and it's weird to me because everything is a sixty five on Metacritic. Anyways, seems like there might be like a weird curve or something going uh, on. Yeah, I, I think Metacritic is, is supposed to be more of an accurate representation of like the individual critics scores of the movie versus just like a good versus bad and then aggregating those i don't know hmm. i don't know how it works it's weird to me uh originally the director avnet hired sobieski to write the screenplay and her first draft because he hired her because of annie was a musical oh uh, avnet was unhappy with the the musical he did say he enjoyed it but that it wasn't what they were looking for and so sobieski left the project and avnet hired flag to write the screenplay for her own book. Uh, she was astonished that anybody wanted to make a book out, or a movie out of her book, and so she signed on, uh, but she found the process very difficult and ended up leaving the project after writing only 70 pages of the screenplay. Uh, at this point, there was no more money for a screenwriter, so Avnet took the project over himself and spent the next two to three years developing the script. Uh, Flag did eventually give her blessing for the final script, though, after oh. he sent it to her. Uh, so I thought this was interesting. Production designer Barbara Ling... Uh, found a nearly deserted Juliet, Georgia, to stand in for Anderson, Alabama. They chose a former antique and hardware store to turn into the Whistle Stop Cafe. And this is the thing I mentioned earlier. It's a fun side note. This cafe still exists and operates as the Whistle Stop Cafe. 
But the Irondale Cafe in Irondale, Alabama that you mentioned earlier is what the actual uh, Whistle Stop Cafe is based on. Mm -hmm. And it also exists still and bills itself as the original Whistle Stop Cafe. It says Irondale Cafe, the original Whistle Stop or something like that. Things heating up in the Whistle Stop Cafe. Yes, so there's technically two Whistle Stop Cafes. One is the Irondale Cafe that bills itself as the original Whistle Stop, and then there's the Whistle Stop Cafe from the movie. both alike in dignity. Yes, and they both serve fried green tomatoes in numerous different ways on their menu. Uh, There's also, this is a random thing, a Whistle Stop, uh, it's not cafe, but ice cream and custard place in Ferguson, Missouri, like near where I grew up. Okay, hold up. That I've been to several times. How many frozen custard places are by your childhood home? Uh, uh, So many. There's three at least in, no, four. There was at least four within like. Because I've heard you wax poetic about two and we've been to one of those. There's two that were like within a mile of my home that were like... um, Fritz's and and uh, Doozles were both with like within a couple miles of my home. There was also Iggy's, which was a little further away, and we never went there because it wasn't as good as Fritz's or Doozles. And Whistle Stop Cafe was like, no, those were all somewhat small, like regional chains. Like there was at least several of each of those, um, not more than like five or so. Um, and the original Fritz's was like right next to my house. It was like a couple blocks away. Um, I just doxed myself, but <laughs> what even was your childhood? <laughs> but uh, Whistle Stop Cafe was like a little. They opened it, um, and it, I don't even know if it existed when I was a kid, but it did at some point, like during my high school life. Um, and they're just like a little. They opened up out of a train station. That's Cute. why it's called the Whistle Stop Cafe. Adorable. It was in a train station in Ferguson, um, and they're still still going strong. They're still uh, apparently selling frozen custard. So. Okay, so the scene where Iggy goes to collect honey from a tree stump for Ruth was originally intended to be performed by a stunt double. However, the stunt double backed out at the last minute and Masterson volunteered to do it herself. Uh, The footage of her covered in a swarm of live bees is the footage you see in the final version of the film. Well, that sounds dangerous. (laughs) Yes. Um, And this is a little cameo note that I thought was interesting that you can look out for if you're watching the movie. Uh, The author, Fanny Flagg, is the woman telling the classroom of disaffected women, quote, you can get that spark back into your marriage, end quote, in the movie. So look out for that. That's Fanny Flagg. So Uh, she was also on uh, a handful of episodes of The Match Game. I don't know. From the 70s. (laughs) It was a 70s game show that was very popular um, where they would like read a sentence Mm -hmm. and there would be like a blank in it and then the contestant would guess a word and then there was a panel of like six like celebrities or Mm -hmm. something and they would they would write a word in so it was kind of like a you would do like one sentence of like a um uh, what's the thing where you uh uh, a a mad lib Mm -hmm. it was like one sentence of a mad lib and there you would fill in the blank and then the the and the celebrities would write in the blank and then however many celebrities wrote the same word as you you got points for it that was how it worked and so she was one of the like celebrity panelists for a while on the show anyways it was a fun i used to watch it back on like the game show network when i was a kid it was entertaining they did a lot of that like 70s like naughty humor where Uh it was like oh you could put something naughty here yeah a lot of that stuff that was all i had for fried green tomatoes movie facts uh, before we go, let's tell you where you can watch this. As always, check your local library, or if you still have a local video rental store, check them out and patronize them. Uh, it is available on Amazon Prime. Just fully on Amazon Prime, it looks like. 
I mean, it didn't say that it was available for rent when I Googled it. Okay. So and hopefully not just part said of it. Amazon I'm just Prime. based on the rest of these. I'm wondering if it's a show, <laughs> if it's a Showtime subscription because it's available on Hulu and Sling with a premium subscription, mm-hmm. and that premium subscription subscription is probably Showtime based on the fact that you, it's also available on Showtime's subscription. I'm yeah. wondering if Prime Video because they have those and add-ons. Maybe it it didn't specify what specify when I looked it up. Okay, but. so it may be available on regular Amazon Prime, or you may have to have Showtime add-on for that. Same for Hulu and Sling, uh, or you can rent it from YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, or Vudu for four dollars. So yeah, there you go. Those are your options. Um, yeah, uh, in one week's time, we'll be talking about fried green tomatoes. So come back then. Or we'll be in the midst of a civil or war. Or there will be a civil war. It's very, uh, we're like to- we're coin like, toss. We're like right there. Coin toss. We're dancing on the edge of a knife. Coin toss. Civil war, or we're going to be living, hanging out, sipping wine mimosas and having brunch. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and talking about fried green tomatoes. So one of the two. Come back in one week's time and find out which. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary. Everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. Stay safe. And keep keep being awesome. awesome.